Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Today on Credit Hour, we have a special emergency episode. Part of the goal of Credit Hour is to help bring expertise and knowledge that exists here on campus to the general public. With so much attention focused on Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court, we asked one of our experts, Chair of the Department of Political Science, David Ernest, to come on and help us understand this issue. Um, David, first of all, I don't know if you can just tell us about the confirmation process. I mean, why has this gone over to the Senate? Doesn't the president just appoint Supreme Court justices? Where are we at here? Well, one of the interesting things of the week is that the prominence of this issue and the concerns over Judge Kavanaugh have brought into stark relief the process by which uh, federal judges are appointed and more generally public officials are appointed by the administration. The Constitution Uh, as it does in many areas of governance, uh, actually divides the powers among the branches of government. So while the executive branch and the president have the constitutional authority to appoint public officials, the uh, founding fathers required that the president consult with the legislative branch with the Congress. So the Congress has a constitutional authority to advise and consent the president on any public official nomination. Uh, That obviously is most important when it comes to prominent uh, officials like uh, Supreme Court justices who, as you know, are appointed for life. And so, you know, to update everybody, if they don't know the situation, Justice Kennedy retired. um, And so President uh, Trump now has the opportunity to nominate the next Supreme Court justice. Um, Is this process always so controversial? I mean, obviously, it's an incredibly important position. Are there any maybe historical parallels or precedents for a nomination process that has gone like this? So there have been controversial nominations in the past, and uh, in the blood sport that is Washington, many current participants remember these controversies from the past, and uh, and those memories, I think, inform their behavior today. Uh, The obvious historical precedent would be the nomination of Justice Clarence Thomas, who was nominated in uh, the fall of 1991, and uh, was another nomination process where uh, Anita Hill, who was a clerk for uh, Justice Thomas, uh, Judge Thomas at the time, had accused him of sexual harassment, uh, and Congress held a hearing with, uh, uh, with Anita Hill. So that would be the obvious historical precedent. But prior to that, in 1987, uh, Robert Bork, who was a prominent conservative uh, jurist, was uh, nominated to the court by President Reagan. And uh, Bork's nomination ultimately went through the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee and to the full Senate, which voted him down. So there are occasions in the past where uh, nominees have been rejected by the Senate. Can you give us maybe a little bit of an update on on what are some of the allegations of improper behavior against Brett Kavanaugh? I mean, some of this is, you know, allegations that occurred – you know, decades and decades ago. Why is that relevant today? Well, the question that you're asking, I think, is the core uh, question with which the Senate and, and more generally the American public is wrestling. Uh, and I think there are really sort of three issues that have become wrapped up in this single uh, conflagration that has been this hearing. Uh, one issue is, what are the proper standards for evaluating the fitness of a nominee for the Supreme Court? What are the criteria that we should use to determine uh, their fitness to serve uh, in a lifetime appointment? Uh, The second question is, do we have enough information about Judge Kavanaugh to apply those criteria and standards in our evaluations of his fitness? And then I think the third and, and really important question is, 
Um, how do we handle questions uh, and accusations of sexual assault, and how do we do so in a way that recognizes the dignity and supports survivors? Uh, and as I observed the hearings yesterday, what struck me is that on many occasions, the, the senators and the participants were having those three conversations simultaneously. And sometimes uh, one senator would be addressing one of those issues and uh, another senator would be addressing a different one. So it's a very complicated question as to how do we evaluate the fitness of nominees for the Supreme Court? And uh, the Senate has not set clear rules on that. And you kind of bring it up. I mean, what is so interesting, I think, about this situation is just how the Me Too movement has intersected with this traditionally political battle um, and, and seems to have a large part to play in it. What do you think this both says maybe about um, the Me Too movement and its political efficacy? That's an excellent question. Uh, if one judges its efficacy by its ability to raise awareness of issues, it's been extraordinarily effective. And and one, I, I, I would suspect that the leaders of the movement don't uh, measure their success by the number of uh, men that they've brought down or the number of cases that they've uh, adjudicated or brought to public attention. Uh, so certainly it's been successful in uh, raising awareness. Uh, as a matter of politics, uh, I think we have to wait and see. Uh, the real test, I think, will be the November elections, which will be the first congressional elections since the Me Too movement sort of uh, became uh, a, a part of the national conversation. And uh, the electoral results, I think, will go a long way towards telling us uh, about the power of this movement. Now, you mentioned this criteria, you know, of three separate questions that are sort of being answered in this. You know, I think Democrats would say whether it's an election year is not in one of those three criteria, right? And so they would bring up, obviously, um, the appointment or nomination, I guess I should say, of Merrick Garland um, by President Obama, which the Republicans um, basically postponed until uh, after the presidential election. And then you know, he, he does not sit on the Supreme Court at this point. And so there is some indignity, I think, right from the Democratic side. How does that play into this? Uh, well, I think the indignity in the example of Merrick Garland ultimately point out that this is fundamentally a political process. And what was uh, what was interesting yesterday is there was uh, several senators proposed that we, had pl we apply to the consideration of this issue, that we apply standards of criminal law. So there's this, ex you know, the, the, the repeated, repeated refrain, uh, uh, innocent until proven guilty, which of course is a standard that we use only when we are as a society, making a decision to revoke the rights of an individual, the liberty of an individual. So that's a very high standard that we hold to protect individuals. Um, but, it, but, but an appointment to the Supreme Court is not the same as having the revocation of one's rights. Uh, the, an appointment to a Supreme Court is a privilege. And uh, the, the Democratic senators yesterday responded that we need a different standard. It can't be uh, the standard of, uh, uh, of innocent until proven guilty or proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But the, absent, but, but the fact that we're having this debate, I think, highlights a fundamentally important constitutional point, which was the framers wanted this process to be a process that was decided by the politics of democratically elected officials. They did not uh, articulate standards uh, that they intended for uh, public officials of any variety. Uh, and because it's nakedly political, uh, 
partisan leaders can do things like re uh, reject nominees or table Merrick Garland's nomination and so on and so forth. So uh, the process, while messy and, and controversial, I think has been constitutional. This has been the, consistent with the design and the principles of our government. Well, and that kind of answers my next question. I mean, I think the argument that, you know, Republicans would make is that they're, you know, we're talking about allegations that occurred, you know, when, when uh, you know, Judge Kavanaugh was, was in high school, right? We're talking decades later, the ability to interview witnesses, people's memories fade or change. Uh, how relevant is something that happened so many years ago to, to the decision that we have today? Um, what would you say to that? These are these are very difficult questions, and uh, some constitutionalists have pointed out that the framers intended there to be a bright line between public and private life, uh, and that uh, matters of one's uh, private life should not be part of scrutiny for public office. Um, not everybody agrees with that, and in fact, a number of feminist theorists point out that the division of public and private is one that fundamentally disadvantages women and deprives them of rights. So these are really difficult questions. And as you note, uh, the questions are difficult in the context of a contemporaneous event. In the context of an historical event that occurred 35 years ago, it becomes that much more difficult. So uh, all of which is to say, I think the Senate has a very difficult choice to make and some very difficult decisions uh, as they figure out how to proceed. You know, I think that there is a general sense that this process has been exhausting. Um, both, you know, I don't know if, if a country can have a political emotion, but it, if it, that concept exists, right, it, it seems that we're, we're kind of getting there, right? The, you know, you said naked sort of politicization of this, right? I mean, people talk about the court being an impartial body. That's what we want out of our justice system is for it to be fair, does an issue like this call into question the legitimacy of the court or the impartiality of the court? Is that an argument that that people make? But, you know, like you said, I mean, do people sort of in their essence understand that the court is a political body anyways? Is it something are we losing something that we don't have already? I mean, how would you answer that? I, I, th I think you've identified uh, one of the, I think, enduring consequences of this uh, episode and these discussions that we've been having this week, which is uh, the court will become more politicized. And uh, there has been, uh, for a while, there has been a sense that the Supreme Court is above the politics of the day and that it consists of impartial jurists. And in fact, the very nature of their, uh, the, the wearing of the robe is intended to convey that uh, they are impartial. Uh, and that impartiality, I think, or at least that perception of impartiality is uh, threatened when a, a nominee for a, a justice position, as Judge Kavanaugh is, uh, when a nominee sits before the Senate and uh, criticizes one of the political parties, uh, as he did yesterday, uh, that that questions whether he can be an impartial jurist. And if one questions that about him, uh, one questions that about all the justices. The Supreme Court has enjoyed in American public life a level of esteem that none of the other uh, leading politicians and neither of the other branches of government has enjoyed. Uh, the Supreme Court has traditionally polled much more favorably than either the presidency or the Congress. I think that's going to change going forward. And I think going forward, uh, my concern is justices will be much more uh, openly 
partisan in their orientations and in their politics. Where do we go from here? I mean, I think that's the ultimate question, right? I mean, it seems that Republicans are going to have the vote unless uh, you know something dramatic were to happen with a specific pieces of evidence or, or it just seems that the the trenches have kind of been dug right people are kind of dug in maybe to their positions let's just assume that that you know judge kavanaugh it, it, you know is confirmed uh to the supreme court i mean where where does that leave us i mean does a wound like this heal uh, obviously some people half the country is going to be you know fairly happy about it right the other half is going to be you know, n- not so much. Uh, where does that leave us as a as a country when we have to kind of put the pieces back together? Well, I I, I think there's been a lot of um, heightened emotion and a, and a lot of uh, uh, obviously uh, a strident uh, debate that has has really sought to mobilize uh, supporters and opponents. Uh, and that rhetoric oftentimes disguises the strength of our society and the strength of our institutions. Uh, my view is that our institutions are quite strong, and uh, whereas uh, we used to lament the the apathy of the American voter, uh, if anything, uh, we've seen much more engagement and involvement uh, in the last two years than we've seen in quite some time. So we have an engaged, active, informed electorate that is participating uh, sophisticatedly in in the daily decisions of our government. Uh, these are all good signs of a healthy democracy. When I think about the way forward and I think about the politics of this, I, I, I've tried to ask myself, I wonder what the framers would think in this moment. And I think what the framers would say is that if there is an injustice, if there is a grievance in this moment in the decision on Judge Kavanaugh one way or the other, the redress for that injustice is at the ballot. And the expectation would be that in November, voters will express uh, their approval of or disapproval of the, the actions of the Senate and of their elected officials. Uh, that's the way forward as I see it. And I think uh, November is going to be an extraordinarily uh, uh, contentious midterm election uh, given the context in which we are today. David, thank you so much for joining us with this uh, emergency episode of the podcast. It's always good to have you on. We'll have to have you on again. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, in preparation for Dakota Days, we interview USD Athletic Director David Herbster about championship culture and what he thinks makes a good leader. Until next time, go Yotes.